Welcome to this episode of the Decarb Connects podcast. I'm really fortunate to be joined by two women whose uh, collaboration I'm full of respect for. This is Emily Reichart, the CEO of Greentown Labs, and Pat Sapinsley, the Managing Director of Urban Future Lab, which is part of NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. And the collaboration we're going to be talking about is this Carbon to Value initiative uh, that you have been spearheading. So welcome to both of you. Um, and I think best place to start, I'm going to start with Pat. Can you just give us uh, a little bit of a sense of how you've arrived at this moment in time? And then, Emily, I'll come over to you before we go off into our main areas of questions. Wonderful. Thank you, Alex. So I am Pat Sappensley. I run the Urban Future Lab at NYU Tendon School of Engineering. Uh, we're a center for all things climate tech. We're the longest running and most successful incubator in New York. And we're funded by NYSERDA, which is a New York State agency that promotes energy efficiency and the use of renewable energy. Um, we're very fortunate to be in New York State. Not all states do this. Um, we help companies with market-ready solutions to climate change to scale up. Our goal is to deploy these solutions as widely as possible. We don't have a lot of time. So we focus primarily on market-ready solutions. We're not for profits. We don't take equity. Um, we've been around for 11 years. Um, NYSERDA funded something called the Acre Incubator in 2009, and that has now grown to have uh, incubated 65 companies who have raised $860 million in 11 years, and almost 90% of them are still up and running. Uh, and also with our terrific partners at Greentown Labs, who you're about to hear about, um, and with Fraunhofer Institute, modeled on Greentown's very successful Greentown launch program. We run a clean hydrogen program and this new carbon to value program, which you will hear much more about as we progress in the podcast. So thank you, Alex. Great. Thanks, Pat. Um, Emily, so over to you. So I, I first came across you. I can't remember if I said this to you, but um, I had been lucky enough to have uh, Tara Karimi from um, Semvita on the podcast. And then from there, kind of heard a lot about Green Tunnel. Thank you, Alex. And it's such a pleasure to be on this podcast today um, with Pat. I'm, as you said, Emily Reichert, the CEO of Greentown Labs, and just feeling really fortunate to be a longtime collaborator with Pat and her incubator in New York. It's just truly been such a wonderful partnership over many years. So about Greentown, uh, which you mentioned, and glad to have you already have some background there and perhaps your listeners as well. But just to quickly summarize us, we are the largest climate tech incubator in North America. We're a community today of about 180 early stage companies who are tackling really a lot of challenges across greenhouse gas emitting sectors, including electricity, buildings, transportation, agriculture, and manufacturing. Since we were founded about 10 years ago, we've supported more than 400 startups, and these startups have collectively created more than 6,500 jobs and raised more than $1.3 in capital. And we're very proud to say they have an 80% success rate, which means they continue to grow and thrive after they leave Greentown Labs. And why do we do what we do? We know the pathway to commercializing climate solutions and getting them to scale is very much long and not straightforward and tough. And we know collaboration like the one that we have with Pat and her incubator is critical to getting these technologies to scale in the timeframe we need to do so to address climate change. 
But we also know that we incubators can't do it alone. And so we work with about 70 corporate partners who help our startups scale their technology. And one of the ways uh, that we foster meaningful engagements that Pat already mentioned is through our flagship corporate partnerships accelerator program, which is called Greentown Launch. And through Launch, the Greentown team works with a corporate partner or multiple corporate partners to craft a customized program that coaches both startups and large corporations towards mutually beneficial partnerships. And as Pat said, the C2V initiative, the Carbon to Value initiative that we will be talking about today is based on that launch program. Well, you're very welcome, both of you. So thank you. And Emily, yes, the C2V, this Carbon to Value initiative, it really grabs, I'm sure it's grabbing many people's attention. It grabbed my attention because we hear the most from our industrials about, you know, where's, where's the push? Who's going to help us with this very early stage of getting moving? Where's the funding? But then also, I suppose, there's a, a real desire to start seeing the opportunity from decarbonisation and not only the, the challenge, the you know, cost, carbon to value represents obviously this big kind of energetic push forward. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about the C2V initiative and how might this fit into the kind of industrial decarbonisation roadmaps that are starting to emerge? So just big picture, according to the IPCC, reducing greenhouse gas emissions alone is not going to be enough. And we know that we need to take more than 100 gigatons of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by 2050. Okay, that is a big objective. And more to the point, to your point, how do you make that economical? This is an incredibly challenging problem. And it really requires bringing multiple industries, multiple viewpoints, uh, just lots and lots of different resources and assets to the, the table to solve that problem. So we need multiple stakeholders engaged in doing this. And, and really, it's almost about creating an entirely new industry, a new ecosystem around carbon tech. Any technology or business model innovation that enables carbon capture, utilization, or sequestration of carbon dioxide into valuable products or services. You know, so one quick example might be turning CO2 from a waste to a product. For example, you might make fuels, materials, or chemicals out of CO2. So this C2V initiative, and again, that's the Carbon to Value Initiative, is a partnership between Greentown Labs, uh, NYU's Urban Future Lab, and Fraunhofer USA. And it's supported by NYSERDA and the Canadian Consulate General. It's a multi-year program, realizing, um, like, unlike an accelerator that you might do to, to solve a software problem or get an app to market, this is a challenge and it's an opportunity. And so we have a multi-year, multi-stakeholder initiative to address this challenge with really two main goals. Uh, one is building a carbon tech ecosystem, bringing together that broad range of stakeholders that are going to be needed to solve this problem together. And most importantly, and perhaps more tactically, we aim to accelerate the commercialization of carbon tech innovations through startup corporate partnerships through a program, an acceleration program that I know Pat will be saying more about in just a moment. 
And we're in year one of a three-year program, and we recognize just how hard this challenge is. And commercializing these technologies and bringing them to scale is a process. That's why it's a three-year program. Carbon tech itself is, of course, a really nascent industry. Um, there are diverse value propositions for various industry sectors, and this as a whole, as an industry, shows incredible promise and opportunity given the net zero emission goals across industries and really around the world. So, you know, it's interesting. We've seen a real hunger for engagement and interest in being part of this carbon tech ecosystem that we're building. And that's really shown to us by, again, tactically very strong traction in the initiative. We've seen for our acceleration program, 130 startup applications. We've mapped 400 carbon tech companies to date. Uh, we've seen a thousand uh, inbound interest inquiries through our newsletter. Our kickoff events have seen 700 registrations. Those are big numbers uh, coming from an organization that does a lot of events. Even uh, during this COVID period we've been in, that's a lot of interest in this industry. So we're excited to, to see that interest. And I think it speaks to the big challenge and the big opportunity and that, that many folks wanna be a part of solving this. Now, a key part of what this initiative is all about as well is bringing together a high impact group of academic, NGO and corporate executives really across the sectors, multi-industry stakeholder group that we call the Carbon Leadership Council. And this group is really providing the real world understanding of how these solutions are going to get to market. And hopefully uh, through the program that we're running, some of these uh, corporations that are part of the Carbon Tech Leadership Council or the CLC as we call it, will be investors. Uh, they might be pilot partners. They might be others ways that these companies can engage to help get this carbon tech to scale. A note on what carbon tech is going to be particularly useful for um, re with regard to hard to decarbonize industries. You know, sectors that we like to think about are particularly challenging for electrification, such as aviation, heavy industries like cement, steel, chemicals, uh, sectors that also have process emissions, carbon dioxide coming from reactions inside the production process itself, you know, rather than um, the energy supply, high heat processes that are not economical or unfeasible to electrify. All of those are, are examples of what we think about when we think about the big opportunity here. And finally, I'll just say, you know, one way to think about carbon tech is it's another tool in the climate solutions toolbox and complementary to emissions reduction mitigation. And we think it will remain and should remain a top priority. And I'll just finally say that I think there's a use case for carbon tech as well to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And we currently see, interestingly, the tech industry being an early adopter of this use case, mainly to offset their past emissions or offset future hard to abate emissions. Those net negative greenhouse gas emission goals we've been hearing about uh, need to find their way most likely to a carbon tech solution. 
I think that's what we're hearing more and more across the board is that while sometimes it might feel there's competition between blocks of technology or technology providers, the truth is, I think certainly for our hard to abate sectors, they, they really don't see it as a hydrogen or conversation. They don't see it as a carbon capture or conversation. It's a, this is a jigsaw that they're gonna to have to piece together. So yeah, for this group that you're convening, I think there's a, a, a lot of opportunity, but Pat, let me come to you to see if you've got anything else you wanted to add there. Sure, of course. Why don't, why don't I tell you a little bit more about the program itself in a little more depth. Um, so the, the history of how we came to do this program um, is that it was based on some initial conversations we had with NYSERDA in June of 2019. And I think it's important for people to understand that the federal government here might not be driving innovation as much as we would like it to do, but some of the states are. New York State and California have been very active. There are a few other states stepping up to the plate now. And of course, we're hoping the federal government will also step up to the plate soon. But um, New York State approached us after the governor, Governor Cuomo, in his State of the State address in January of 2019, said that carbon removal was a very important tool in the fight to combat climate change. Now, this wasn't coming from the Department of Energy. It was coming from the New York State governor and that he wanted to do something about it. So we had recently run a very successful program with Greentown Labs with Emily and her terrific staff. Um, and that was on clean hydrogen. NYSERDA had funded that. They loved the result. In another podcast, we'll talk about that one. Um, and they asked us to put together a program for carbon tech. Um, so, so we did that. And, and the idea there was to bring together Greentown Lab's really impressive um, launch program, except with far more corporate sponsors. Uh, these are usually bespoke programs having to do with the interest of maybe one or a couple of corporates uh, later, I'll list all 12 corporates that are in this program. Um, but we wanted to bring them together, the corporates. And this time we added um, the, the not-for-profits because there is a lot of expertise that resides in these not-for-profits that can be extremely helpful to our startups. So we've layered on the expertise of the not-for-profits for their grasp of policy, market intelligence, and networks. And the corporates, of course, will add their business acumen, their experience in the industry. They know the market. They have influence in the industry. They have capital to spend. They have testing facilities. They have, you know, big, big machines, the machines of industry that can help the startups to move forward. Um, so by wrapping the not-for-profits and the corporates and the startups all together in a bespoke program, um, we, we hope to do nothing short of jumpstarting this carbon tech industry. We hope that we will be instrumental in creating a new industry. We have three funded years to do this and, and we hope to continue after that, but that's the intent of the program. So the long haul is to go at least three years and beyond and stay helping these, these companies as long as we can. And we hope lots of productive partnerships will come out of this. Is the, is the ultimate win, if you like, I'm sure there are a number of stages of wins, but is it shortcutting the kind of the relationship build or it, like, what, what is it that you think helps speed up each step in, in what would otherwise be a more protracted cycle of testing, scaling and so forth? So could, could you give a couple of quite you know pragmatic examples of like, we think it's going to do 
X. I mean, I, I understand the the different partnerships can speed it up, but could you could you speak to that little? Sure. In the open market, we have seen the barriers that startups face when trying to engage with big corporates. First of all, they don't know which door to knock on at the corporate entity. Who's going to be the champion there? Um, secondly, the corporates generally are a little risk averse. They want to protect themselves. And they don't really think of this as an extension that can be valuable to them of their R&D um, so they can't, they can't do research and design on everything. So if we can help to bring them interesting research that's happening, it's actually cost effective for them to work with these startups. So we can kickstart these relationships and make them happen. Um, especially in the United States, everybody is very risk averse. You know, I'm, I'm an architect by training. I see when we're doing building energy efficiency, how risk averse the real estate industry is. They're so focused on liability that they they keep the startups at bay. They want them to have millions of dollars of liability insurance and bond themselves. No, we, we, we want to hop over all of that and form allegiances between these corporates and the startups that are helpful to both sides of the equation and that will move this industry, give birth to this industry quite quickly instead of in the slower way that it might happen naturally. Sometimes I think it's not always clear to, to people that are not in the startup world, why might something take so long? And I think uh, that was really useful, but you were about to tell us who's, who's involved. So let me, let me sort of redirect you back into your flow. So obviously it's Greentown Labs and Urban Future Lab. We have the Fraunhofer Institute, which is a little bit like the United States Department of Energy in that it has labs that do research. They were very instrumental in Germany. Um, giving birth to the solar industry, for instance, and they've helped us with um, assessment of these 130 companies as we narrowed them down to, to 10. Um, obviously, NYSERDA, who I've mentioned, the Canadian consulate, um, and then this Carbon Tech Leadership Council, which I do want to tell you about. This is an invitation-only group of corporate partners who are leaders in decarbonization. They've demonstrated enthusiasm to be early adopters and deployers of carbon tech solutions. And, and by watching them, the rest of the industrial world can see a very strong market signal that this mix of organizations is very interested in moving in this direction. And that's very helpful. So the 12 corporates that we've invited in who are working with us on this, they span a wide range of industry verticals from food and ag, where we have AB and Bev chemicals, we have Johnson Mafia and Mitsubishi Chemicals, Waste and Water, we have Suez, who are actually creating a new business unit um, in carbon tech. We have mining represented by BHP, we have advanced materials represented by WL Gore, power generation and distribution represented by Con Ed and NRG, um, the EPC world floor, who have built lots of these things and also have experience in steel manufacturing. Um, we have the world of finance represented by uh, the Bank of Montreal, consumer products, Unilever, and building materials, um, CM Cement Group. So each vertical has the potential to adopt carbon tech solutions as either a technology um, or as an end product, a, a market offering that they might go into. So there's a lot of synergy between these corporates and our startups. Um, and in fact, some of them might be complementary to each other so that we could represent the full value chain if we wrap three of them around one company, for instance, um, CO2 
from the source uh, might be from NRG flue gas, uh, and then that would be turned into CO2 and moved on to Mitsubishi Chemicals to do some chemical conversion, and that could be moved on to Unilever, where they're doing CO2-derived plastics. So that's just a crazy example, but we're hoping that these synergies will develop because an important part of what we're doing is creating an ecosystem where these people all get to know each other quite well because of our workshops and our curriculum. So let me go on a bit to that um, before I go to the workshops and the curriculum, uh, the not-for-profits, which I skipped over. So these have been extremely influential in building interest in, in carbon tech and in doing research. Uh, the research is terrific. You could read forever from what these, what these not-for-profits are doing. And I tend to dive into the internet and read all of their studies. Carbon 180 has been very impressive. Carbon Plan, the Circular Carbon Network has put together an open source list of, I think it's 400 companies working in this and all the investors working in this and all the corporates working in this. Um, the X Prize, and, and we also have Carbon Direct, who are kind of both a think tank and an investor in the carbon tech industry. And of course, we have the governments of New York and Canada, and that can help us to sort of ask about policy, offer some ideas about policy, and maybe even get them implemented. Um, so something interesting that I should mention is that um, CCUS has been sort of the backyard of the oil and gas industry. Um, and it's perceived by many, and it used to be perceived by me, actually. Um, I poo-pooed all of this for years um, as a solution to allow the oil and gas companies to operate as under business as usual. But this is no longer the case, as, as our Carbon to Value Initiative demonstrates. There are many other use cases for CO2 and for innovation in this sector. And we hope to explore them, develop more of them, and go far beyond the oil and gas sector. We are not working on EOR in this program. Um, so the selected startups will work with the CLC members and their extended network to identify all kinds of collaboration uh, and solutions to overcome the policy barriers, the market and technology barriers, that the sector is currently facing and hopefully together we'll be able to speed up this adoption. Um, then just to let you know that the, the way the program is designed, we have six months of workshops and curriculum uh, to help these 10 startups and it's a bespoke design. You know, we will, we will modify the workshops as we discover things while working with the startups and the industry participants. Um, so obviously we wanna foster connection and collaboration with the corporates and with the carbon tech experts. We have a mentorship program um, through the NYSERDA EIR program out of Columbia Ventures and the Greentown Labs Network, where we have very strong mentorship relationships with the startups that have already proven, and we've been doing this already for a month now, and it's already been very informative. Um, the curriculum itself focuses on building these partnerships on what the carb, you know, we are educating the companies and even the corporates on the carbon markets, on policy, on accounting, on financing strategies that are needed. Um, uh, the curriculum is based on the specific needs of the cohort, as I said. And of course, we hope to build the ecosystem. Um, we expect these connections to build a very strong sense of community and cohort camaraderie between the CLC members, the startups, and the not-for-profits, and the mentors. 
And that we hope will extend way beyond the six month program as, as it stands now. Interesting thing to see that the CCUS story uh, emerge and, and finesse even further. But Emily, tell us a bit about what, what are you seeing that's ready now versus again, what, what is in this early R&D phase, these groups that you're uh, channeled into right now? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dive into that a bit, Alex. And, you know, I, I just step back for, for one moment and uh, kind of echo Pat a bit. You know, I think the CCUS acronym even sometimes can be off-putting to certain groups. And I think it's just good for us to step back and understand where we are relative to where these technologies are, where we need to go. And so just taking those pieces one at a time, carbon capture, I'd say, is a solution that we know how to do. Um, it's probably the most established, although it probably still requires some innovation to become more efficient and cost-effective. Whereas from a CO2 utilization perspective, coupling that with carbon capture, as Pat mentioned, um, you know, the largest market of that today is enhanced oil recovery or EOR. And that's really the injecting CO2 into the ground to improve productivity of oil fields. Now, also as Pat indicated, given our organization's shared mission to address climate change, we actually don't include EOR in the field of startups that we support. And that's also because we feel this market is already established. Um, it is not something that we necessarily need to be providing support to. You know, the point is to get carbon capture and utilization to the point where we do not have to have it coupled with EOR. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that a key objective, uh, perhaps not stated clearly, but uh, certainly in the hearts and minds of Pat and I is to create a carbon tech ecosystem that we are trying to build through this initiative so that EOR does not have to be part of the solution that makes carbon capture and utilization and sequestration, frankly, um, you know, economically viable. So what we are really trying to do is decouple those. You know, the good news is I think that there are literally hundreds of CO2 source, process, product, market combinations you know, that make this space both really complex, but also incredibly fascinating. You know, with the market size, it's estimated at $6 trillion globally. And that's according to a recent study from Carbon 180. The three solutions I'd highlight, particularly that are on the earlier side, that I think we're seeing a lot of interest and traction around. Uh, again, we need to figure out how to make the economics work. Uh, those are direct air capture, chemicals and fuel synthesis, and incorporation of carbon dioxide into cement. So first, direct air capture is capturing carbon directly from the air. You know, this is particularly difficult as CO2 accounts for about 0.04% of air versus 8 to 20% in a combustion flue gas and greater than 90% uh, a fermentation process like bioethanol production. And so there are a few companies, only a few in this space that I think are, are tackling this from a, uh, you know, larger direct air capture versus a point source capture. Uh, those are Climeworks, Global Thermostat, Carbon Engineering. 
but we're also seeing a lot of new entrants into this area as well, like Heirloom, Mission Zero, uh, those are a couple examples. You know, it's a longer term solution with many unknowns and many risks related to capital intensity, energy use, land use, siting, um, among many other challenges. However, I think we both think it's worth pursuing to you know, fully think about how we build circular uh, carbon dioxide value chains or to build carbon negative products and services. And certainly that's part of our bigger picture mission here. Moving on to the chemicals and fuel synthesis from carbon dioxide and green hydrogen, definitely high on the list there, although the economics at scale do not yet work either. Um, examples of that would be uh, carbon devalue portfolio company Airco, which is making ethanol and other fun ethanol products from carbon dioxide. Uh, CERT making chemicals via electrolysis or Semvita, which is actually a Greentown Houston company as well. It's making ethylene uh, from biological conversion. And one particular route of interest demonstrated at small scale, but relying on a green hydrogen supply is electrofuels. That's combining carbon dioxide and green hydrogen, for example, to make jet fuel that decarbonizes aviation. And this can also be done to produce diesel and decarbonize the maritime transport sector, which is another exciting potential application. And finally, to get to the sequestration piece, uh, carbon dioxide injection into concrete is an interesting solution that is today showing very promising results with companies like Carbon Cure having deployed over 400 plants around the world in cement factories. And there's been some uh, past Carbon X Prize winners as well that have focused on carbon utilization, including two um, CO2 use companies, Carbon Built and Carbon Cure. So there's definitely advantages to this solution. There's a huge cement market, um, which will continue to grow as long as we continue to build things all around the world. And the, the carbon dioxide sequestration is considered permanent. That is that the uh, CO2 really reacts with the concrete and gets trapped even after use. And it also increases the strength of the cement. So that's a few examples of areas that we're seeing in the broad sense. Uh, Pat may want to comment on a few specific companies uh, within the cohort. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, I'll, I'll come here in a moment, Pat. It's interesting, your, your point on the cement, those kind of startups and early stage technologies that sort of feed into the cement uh, sector. When you stand outside and you're not working with industrials, that often I blew my marbles, something that now is so obvious, but that cement is the single most used material on earth. And beyond that, it is essential for countries and regions that want to develop and become more economically sustainable, let alone anything else. So I, I guess these sorts of technologies are fascinating on all sorts of levels, but not least because they kind of expose the different arguments around climate as well about are we, you know, what is it that we're trying to enable through, through the work that we do? But I, I find them, yeah, fascinating. But Pat, let me come to you. You know, when you, when you, when you hear, and obviously you know these companies that are part of the initiative, but you hear Emily talking about them, which, which kind of areas are you most excited by? Well, I, I do have some favorites, it's true, but I, they're, they're all really wonderful companies. And actually, when they first all presented to us, I came away from the event 
saying to myself something that I rarely say, you know, I've been doing work on the climate for 15 years and it can be, uh, what's the word, you know, a little existential, right? But I came away from that event saying to myself, oh my, we might actually be able to engineer our way out of this problem. It, it was actually inspirational. So, so rather than speaking about any individual company, I, I'd like to kind of leave it at that. Uh, and maybe I will talk about um, these, these market drivers because I think we're not going to get anywhere unless we understand what the market drivers are, if, if you don't mind. Um, you know, on yesterday there was big news that the EU had adopted a big climate change law for all 27 nations, uh, limiting greenhouse gas emissions 55% by 2030 and net zero economies, all of them, by 2050. So that's brilliant. That's a federal government that really understands and cares about this issue. Unfortunately, in the US, we don't have that kind of agreement across all sectors, let's say. Um, we do have one federal law that's quite interesting. It's this 45Q tax credit, and it was established in order to promote EOR. Um, this is the one where there is a tax credit um, for capturing and sequestering CO2 because it does drive oil out of the ground more easily. But that same tax credit, if we uh, use it for some of our companies, which we can do, is going to be very beneficial in bringing down the cost of these technologies. Um, so, so that's an interesting example of how our government is focused. It's far easier to get unilateral approval in, in our government, our federal government, of a tax credit than a tax. It's gonna be very hard to get a tax on carbon in this country, which you may be able to do in, in Europe. Um, but 45Q is a tax credit. It, it gives industries money to play with, and it gives the fossil fuel industry money to play with, and it gives senators and representatives from West Virginia, Wyoming, the Dakotas, who are very much in favor of the fossil fuel industries, it, it will get their support. So if we can use 45Q to help our companies find a, a beneficial economic driver because of this policy, that's great. So we will do that. Um, now, some of the other policies have to be more local. Um, I did mention that New York has been ahead of the curve on all of this. We have some local laws in New York that will be replicated in other states and other countries. Um, right now, we have something in New York City called Local Law 97, which legislates that certain buildings can only emit certain amounts of GHG according to their building type. In New York City, 73% of carbon emissions are from buildings. It's obvious you can see how, how built up we are. Um, and there will be large penalties for those who don't comply and these penalties will start kicking in in 2024. That means for a company like ours, and I will mention one company, Alex, uh, Carbon Quest is a company in our program. They are capturing flue gas at New York City buildings, residential and commercial buildings, and on site with equipment that's, you know, about the size of the HVAC equipment. It takes up two parking spaces in the garage. So that is a policy driver that's creating a market. That's a very good example of one. Another is what we call the LECLA law, 
which is Low Embodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act in New York and New Jersey. That's legislation that has recently been passed that is a procurement um, effort. It, it tells all state agencies and departments that when they're buying concrete, and, and of course the state agencies are the largest construction entities in the state, um, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey definitely builds more than anyone else. Um, they have to calculate their global warming potential for their concretes, and they will get uh, any any bidder will get a five percent discount on their concrete, so that it could win the bid if it has a very low global warming potential. So that's another example of a local policy that is driving the market. Um, and then the, the, the sort of free market policies that are driving the market, I can't call them policies, the, the free market drivers that are influencing the market here are a little bit indirect in the United States. Um, they will change as we bring the cost curves down on all of these technologies. And that should happen quickly because of the work that we're doing at Greentown and UFL. Um, but at the moment, it's things like stockholder pressure, which we've just seen in the Exxon thing. Um, lenders, the banks want to be able to show that the assets they hold can fit into an ESG portfolio. Customers are asking for this. You know, uh, the Unilever plastic tub and Unilever is one of our CLC members is a great example of this because they've made a plastic tub out of CO2. And when customers see that on the shelf, they're going to buy that. Uh, it's a tub that holds, uh, sorry, laundry detergent. When customers see that, they will prefer to buy that to the tub that sits next to it. So the, the free market drivers are coming from the consumers, from the investors, from the stockholders, from the banks. And that is driving a lot of the interest in this. So we're very happy to see that. And we've seen, you know, Microsoft, Spotify, and others just, just understand this market signal and, and work with it. So we, we like to see more of that. We had a interesting discussion at a recent event that we ran. Actually, it was the North American uh, iteration of our event series. And one of the ideas that came up for discussion was the idea that both as a consumer but also as a business buyer of materials you might be able to look at uh, your product in, in the same way that we look at food packaging now and that instead of seeing the calorific content of the food you know you'd be seeing the carbon content of the product that you're buying there are a number of drivers that are not quite there yet but that could well be online within the next kind of two to three years one might hope but again can push and make these business models even more viable. Coming back to the actual initiative itself then, Pat, this one to you. Um, I know you've mentioned that you already have your group of corporates um, that you've chosen to get involved and they represent those different verticals, but are there other ways for other corporates or industrials or other, you know, those, those big organizations to get stuck into this? Or tell us a bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So we are working with the group that I mentioned in year one. We still have year two and year three ahead of us. So we would be delighted to welcome other corporates and other industries. And, and those sectors where we're looking are, you know, the technology sector. I mentioned Microsoft uh, entities like those consumer industries, finance, mining, chemicals, advanced materials, building materials, particularly manufacturing is such a such an important one, especially for those with heavy carbon needs. 
utilities, of course, infrastructure, food and ag. We need more involvement from food and ag. Um, so I think it's important for those to stay in touch and they can look at our C2V website, c2vinitiative.org um, to learn more about it and sign up on our website. Um, they can follow us. They can come to our final showcase, which will be soon. Um, I believe it's in October this year. Uh, and, and they can see what we're doing, see what effect it has and, and stay apprised of the corporate partnerships that develop um, in order to join, corporates must demonstrate a very strong commitment to sustainability. This is not greenwashing. This is the real deal. Um, they must participate in decarbonization. They must be interested or exhibit carbon tech expertise from either past projects they've done or a true interest in expected future projects that they're planning. They must have an appetite to work with startups. As I said, there is a little bit of a disconnect and they have to be willing to have a champion and to bring down those barriers that make it so hard for a startup to connect with the corporate. And of course, they also have to be willing to contribute financially to this effort. Um, so yes, we, we would be very interested uh, in working with, with others and they could join the Carbon Tech Leadership Council in the future, which is you know, a non-governing advisory board and they can engage quite deeply with, with our startups in the future. We would welcome their interest and hope they'll reach out to us and we hope to hear more from them. I'm sure you'll get a lot of interest. Um, well, Emmy, let me come to you in wrap up then. And, you know, obviously you're, you're, at, the, you're at the starting point of this initiative. Um, so I'm sure there's a million things that you're looking forward to seeing happen next. But if, if I were going to pin you down and say, what, what are the sort of the next two or three things that you're just excited to see unfold from this? What, what's on your mind? What are you looking forward to? I just want to echo what you said about the change in momentum and direction and how visible that is among so many industrial players at this point. Uh, certainly in the area we're talking about today with excitement around carbon tech, but more broadly, just an understanding that we are moving from talking to action. And I have literally in the Houston context that I spend a lot of time on hearing companies that a year ago would have said, oh, we know we need to do that To We know we need to act on that. And there is a bit of an inflection point and it's due to all of the different market pressures uh, that Pat has, has so thoughtfully laid out. You know, for us, I think when we think about the big picture and what we're trying to accomplish next here, it really is nothing less than building a new industry, the carbon tech industry, scaling that up and jumpstarting it. As, as Pat said, you know, we have so much to do and we need to get it done and it needs to be based on the science. And as I said at the outset, uh, the IPCC, the 2018 report says we need to do this. We need to get carbon out of the atmosphere. And carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration is one of the solutions in the toolbox. But we still need to get the economics right, and we need to get that right as quickly as possible. And that's really what the C2V initiative is all about. It's helping those startups who have the innovative ideas and those corporates that know how to do things at scale to find each other and work together so that we get those economics right. As Pat said, we are absolutely inspired and heartened by the excitement, the interest, the engagement in this ecosystem to date. We think that we have an 
possible role to play in influencing policy and certainly one in terms of road mapping where this industry can and should go and how fast it can go. And I guess I'd just step back finally and, and say that I think that this can be the first example for many future collaborations of its type. The C2V initiative is really a model for collaboration for solving big, hard to decarbonize industry problems. You know, so you could look at hydrogen, manufacturing of many types, creation of a truly circular economy, especially when it comes to waste streams. These are all big, challenging problems, and they need a multi-industry, multi-stakeholder, all hands on deck type approach. And so we hope the C2V initiative is the first of many that our two organizations work on together and uh, we look forward to addressing this biggest global challenge of our time, climate change, through technology innovation and getting that to scale. Emily very beautifully articulated this collaborative mindset. It is something that she and I both have. We are big incubators in the Northeast. We could choose to compete with each other. Instead, we are so much stronger by collaborating with each other. And by the same token, if we look at the carbon intensive industries and say they're the enemy, they've been spewing out carbon all these years, that's not gonna get us anywhere. But if we help show them the way, guide them to a, a carbon tech pathway that shows them how to capture that waste and do something productive with it, then we've done a very wonderful thing. So it is all hands on deck, as Emily said. It has to be collaborative. We must work with these industries, and we are modeling how to do that here. Thank you both. I mean, I, I just, I look at the work you're doing, and I think policymakers would be mad not to be getting involved and listening, because everything you're saying is about job creation, it's about IP creation, it's about export markets. This is not just about the future protection of our planet and our ability to live here. This is about uh, creating you know, vibrant markets that America or any other country can then you know, grow. So I think the beginning of something that feels very exciting and a very strong collaboration. So thank you both so much for coming to talk about it. Thank you, Alex, and thank you to the wonderful Emily. It's a great collaboration. Right back to you, Pat, and thank you, Alex. Take care. Thanks.